Hello, welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is John Higgs, who is here to discuss his book, Love and Let Die, Bond, The Beatles and the British Psyche. The Beatles' first single and the first James Bond film were both unleashed upon the world on October the 5th, 1962, and both of them are very much still with us. John's book looks at why and how this has happened, and what this says about British culture as a whole. It also explains why James Bond hated the Beatles, why Paul McCartney wanted to be Bond, and why it was Ringo who won the heart of a Bond girl in the end. John Higgs, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm very well. Hello, Joe. Thank you for having me. Absolutely my pleasure. We're here to talk about Love and Let Die, Bond, the Beatles and the British Psyche, uh, two of my, I should confess straight away, twin loves. So yeah, I was thrilled <laughs> to receive this book through the post. And it, was, really... it was written for you, basically. <laughs> At last, someone's written a Beatles book just for me. It's taken, it's taken this long. Um, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the kind of genesis of the book. When did the Beatles and Bond first become associated in your head and how did that lead into you writing the book? Well, it's two things, really. The first was I just found myself on the Dr. No Wikipedia page. Couldn't tell you why I'd gone there or what, but you know what Wikipedia's like, these things happen. And I just noticed on, in the little box on the right, it's sort of release, you know, 5th of October 1962. And I just thought, no, that can't be right. You know, I'm, I'm enough of a Beatles nerd that that date sort of pops out at me. And There's no way that's right. That's just too strange a coincidence. This was coming on top of, I'd just written a book about William Blake called William Blake versus the World. I was very much influenced by how he described the world and the, the importance of countries runs through his, his whole thing, the op- opposites. You can't, you know, have, you know, hot without cold or long without tall. So he writes things like the marriage of heaven and hell, because you can't just talk about hell or talk about heaven. You need, you sort of need them both. And it's the dynamic between the two. That's really what's interesting. Um, and that idea was, I thought, well, that's, that's kind of interesting. I wonder if, if I tell a story of two opposites, just by putting them next to each other, you'd get, uh, you know, a whole new rush of insights and perspective on them that you might not otherwise have. Uh, and so when I saw that Bond and the Beatles were born on the same day, and I immediately saw them as love and death. And I knew enough Freud to know that those are the two key uh, drives in human psychologists, Eros and Thanatos, the love drive and the death drive, those competing impulses that, that it all fell into place immediately at that point. Uh, and I thought, um, surely people are just going to go, well, you've just written a book about two completely unrelated and different things. But the beauty about writing a book about two completely unrelated and different things is the moment you've done it, everybody's fine and agrees that that's, that, that, that's how it should be. <laughs> no one complains, which is good. Absolutely. So, yes, as you say, the Beatles and James Bond the film, the James Bond films, we should say, uh, were brought into being on exactly the same day in October 1962. And they're both pretty much instant successes with a few kind of caveats. Yeah. Um, why do you think that was? Why did these two things kind of catch on so quickly across the UK? What did that say about kind of Britain in 1962? Oh, we were ready. We, we were ready for um, the modern. We were ready for something different. You know, we'd been through the the austerity 1950s, and more importantly, the story of 
us of this island had collapsed after, particularly after Suez, after the Suez Canal debacle, for, for want of a better. That was that's usually uh, held up as the one moment where even the most imperialistic sort of um, establishment figure went. We're nobody now. We're not. We're not a world-beating empire anymore. Those days have gone. You know, we can't. Uh, we can't exert ourselves on the world stage. Um, the notion that Britannia rules the waves, the sun never sets on the British Empire. That story, that had, and it being like a couple of hundred years, was that was how we understood ourselves, and we saw nothing wrong with it. You know, that was us. That had just collapsed, and we didn't kind of know who we were at that point. There was no sort of narrating. You know, people talk about the matter of England or the matter of Britain as the stories that define us. So. Things like, you know, Arthur, the Arthurian legends and Merlin, the things were called the matter of Britain, because in the medieval times, that defined us, which was that, that we had kingship, we had monarchy, and they were better and more refined and spiritually pure because they were after the Holy Grail. And, you know, that, that was us. That was, that, was, that was our story. But that story faded and died, and then the big imperial one came up and faded and died. So we could have been anyone at that point with a small damp island, you know, off, off Western Europe. And whenever there's a, you know, a, a void, a gap, we're just waiting for something to come and sort of fill it. And so the modernity of the Beatles and, and Bond uh, immediately appealed. And we were, yeah, we were just ready for them, Joe, I think. Bond is obviously, he's quite famously dismissive of the Beatles in 1964's Goldfinger, <laughs> which you describe in the book as a rare lapse of taste on Bond's, <laughs> on Bond's uh, behalf. I thought that that's quite an interesting, that's almost the only kind of complete crossover in the films where the Beatles actually mentioned by name. What does that tell us about how the Beatles were perceived even in 1964? Bond was very much quoting the establishment view. If you look at the circles that Ian Fleming moved in, people like Noel Coward and stuff like that, there was this constant uh, sense of being appalled by this new thing that, that they were just horrified by. One of the... Um, uh, key stories that I think set this book rolling in my head was um, reading something Hanif Qureshi wrote about how he, when he was at school, I think he was in Kent, he had um, his teachers told him that the Beatles didn't write their own material because they couldn't. You know, there they were, they were, you know, they were not from the right families, they didn't go to the right schools. There's no way they could be better at something than the right sort of people. And uh, Qureshi's really insightful in this when he's talking about his music teacher. And he was, he's sort of saying that um, he knew his music teacher had to cling to this belief because it, it, otherwise it would take too much else away. You know, the notion that if people with backgrounds like that teacher, if they weren't superior, you know, if, if you know, imagination and creativity, creativity and talent and hard work, and, you know, attributes like that were evenly distributed around the, you know, the country and not just concentrated in the, in the children of the rich. And his whole worldview crapped, collapsed, you know. The whole thing would sort of fall apart. It's very, very significant. And so the whole thing about getting their MBEs and things like that seems trivial now, but it was so loaded at the time. It was, it was really um, a recognition that the establishment was built on bullshit, which is which is a powerful recognition you know it was it really it really was a big deal because they were so much more talented and better than all the right people the mbes are interesting because there's a clip which you 
probably are familiar with, which is used in the anthology films, where they do these kind of vox pops of people. I think mm. it might be around Cambridge or Oxford from mm. the look of the background of different kind of ages and and backgrounds. And yeah, there are some people that are really quite angry. Yeah. That, uh, I think there's one guy, slightly Oxford Don type figure that says, I should be rather put out if I had the MBE and I was on the same <laughs> level as a pop singer. Um, <laughs> as time goes on, you don't really get that now. If you think the kind of people that get MBEs now. It's, a, it's an example of how the Beatles changed our culture. Mm. One of the many, many smaller examples that all sort of build up into a situation where it's unimaginable what this country would be like if the Beatles hadn't existed. It's such a, such a historically significant force of change in such a brief period. They were the most popular, famous, best love entertainers in the entire world. And they just sort of sucked up every interesting idea from, you know, the avant-garde to the counterculture. And they just distilled it into gold and they just sprayed it back at the mainstream. And there's never been a sort of, you know, evolutionary vector for ideas like that before. We may never get one again. The, just the, uh, the sheer jolt they gave to the system is, qu- is quite phenomenal, I think, yeah. So... Moving through the, the 60s, in, in 1967, uh, the Beatles, as most listeners will know, strained the realms of fantasy to a certain extent with, with the Sgt. Pepper album and then into the surreal with Magical Mystery Tour. And the Bond film from 1967, uh, as some might not know, is You Only Live Twice, which is generally seen to be quite an indulgent, it's quite a long way from the gritty spy novels and the, those early Bond films. Yeah. Most, quite a lot of the Austin Powers films borrow large chunks of You Only Live Twice. So by 67, both Bond and the Beatles, they're moving away from their original kind of tides of success. How did Bond and the Beatles kind of react to the, the progression of the 60s? Well, uh, differently. I mean, for Bond, he was chasing the times. He was trying to keep up with changing times, but the Beatles were changing the times themselves. It took us a little bit of time to catch up with the Beatles when they went full psychedelic. And you can see things like um, Strawberry Fields Forever not getting to number one because people weren't quite sure what to make of it. Now we listen to it and we, we live in a world where things like that exist and we can, we can understand them. And we just go, oh, God, that's astonishing. What an amazing, amazing piece of music that was. So they were a little bit ahead of the time waiting for us to catch up. And it was people like the Bond filmmakers who were aware that the world was changing and then desperately trying to fit into it and thinking, I know what we need is a giant volcano base with abseiling ninjas. That's sort of where we need to go. But all credit to Bond, his ability to change and catch up and to change with the times and try and capture the times and try and become relevant. It's not an easy thing to do. And for doing it, Decade after decade after decade is rare. And, you know, ever since that, that film that you were talking about, every film has come out to a review that says, yeah, this is a bit old hat now. I think you should probably stop making these films. You know, every single one, you know, even up to No Time to Die, there'll be a review going, yeah, it's, it's, it's past it now. You see. Uh, and yet it endures. And, and yet it sustains. And yet it, every film makes money. And, you know, it doesn't make sense because... Films don't work like that. You can't come out with a film that 
then has 25 sequels over 60 years and every single one of them, you know, makes money. It's a, you ask any film producer, that's just insane. Yeah, it's, it's never going to happen. So there is something really fascinating about the way Bond changes because it does track what it means to, or what the, 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 the idealized fantasy of male identity is because that's that's changed so much since Ian Fleming's time, and mm. Bond is a really good indication of that. And when you look at it in perspective, you go, "Well, it's not ideal, sure, but the overall thing, hey, that is actually quite positive." I think. Just moving back slightly, of course, in 1965, the beat was "Make Help," mm. which is actually it's almost quite a conscious Bond parody. Very much so, yeah. Which I think is interesting because it shows the power of Bond at that point. Yeah, that the biggest group in the world would choose to, which kind of mine that particular area of of culture. Um, Helps not looked upon as we're speaking today with with as much kind of affection, certainly as Hard Day's Night. How do you feel about that film? And do you think it was a a real, a really conscious borrowing of kind of Bond based ideas? It was a very conscious borrowing, and that that is interesting because at nineteen sixty five, the Beatles had pretty much done everything you know they, they this this notion of paul's that they were this good little rock and roll band you know they'd sort of achieved everything they could possibly dream of for that in that category uh and more and you would have thought that there was nowhere to go but down at that point maybe sustained for another year or so we didn't had no sense of the huge sort of artistic leaps that they were they were sort of they were going to make they were basically on top of the world and what fantasy is left for them? You know, what dream is there? So the, the notion, well, we could be James Bond. You know, we could put ourselves in, in a Bond film. And they are so similar. I love the fact that they just filmed in the Bahamas for tax reasons rather than plot reasons. Things like, things like that are so Bond. And, the, you know, the skiing things in the Alps. And uh, I'm very fond of that film, I have to say. I think probably more than most. I think the first 15 minutes or so are immaculate. Admittedly, it entirely falls apart plot-wise at, at that point. But if you listen to the, the audio track of it, a lot of it is dubbed on afterwards mm. when they were clearly off, stoned off their faces. So it just becomes a bunch of silly noises. It's oh, all this sort of going on. And if you're in the mood for it, it's very funny. I mean, it's, it's, so, it's so goons. Yeah, absolutely. There is. It's got that British comedy side to it. Obviously, using great British actors like Liam McKern and their old pal Victor Spinetti. It was my introduction. Actually, I was helped on TV in June 1992 when I was eight, and yes. it happened to be. I happened to catch that first 15 minutes of them walking into that house. I think that really defines them in a lot of people's minds. That moment where they're just outside, they're very normal, and the old lady's going, oh, we don't like to, you know. And then they walk in, and then there's Beetle World. But really, yeah. they're, in, they're in Beetle World. That's had quite an, an impact on people, that idea. Well, I think that because that's more like, because Hard Day's Night is just them being them, essentially. Yes. Whereas yes. Help, as you say, it loses its, it kind of goes a little bit too outlandish for some people and it becomes this you know this kind of crazy knockabout thing but I, whereas that first 15 minutes you kind of want to be in that world just like you want totally. to be in a hard day's night totally it is quite fun i mean it, it falls apart because the plot the scenes happen that don't advance the plot they want to get the ring off ringo they'll have a try it doesn't work 
So I'll have a try again and it doesn't work. So I'll have a try again and it doesn't work. Films don't work like that. You know, you need you need to sort of keep advancing things, even if it is in a hard day's night, even if it's this documentary style or we're just following through the day, but you can see them being, um, you're trying to get some freedom from being cooped up in hotel rooms and, and stuff like that. It's much more character-based sort of narrative sort of pulling you, pulling you through that. It feels more satisfying uh, than help. But once you once you're aware of the, flaws of help you can then just love it for what it is I, i'm a great fan of 1970s doctor who i can't help it and it's mainly because you just totally accept the crap bits you go, yeah oh, it's the giant rat coming up now oh this is terrible oh you're gonna love it once you accept the, the the terrible bits it doesn't ruin it for you anymore you're just thinking you, you can then appreciate the, the fun and the, the artistry and the good bits of it so i'm at that level with help i think that's well we should all be, really, I think, with help. Um, <laughs> so moving through the 60s, at the end of the 60s in, in 1969, your book makes the point that John Lennon, Paul McCartney and James Bond all get married. Mm. And again, you say in the book, it hadn't really struck me un- until I read your book, was that the end was kind of in the air for both the Beatles and for James Bond for kind of different reasons and as we know the Beatles did come to an end and bond after um some difficulties with Honor Majesty's Secret Service and George Lazenby continue to go from strength to strength through the 70s um what do you think that says about about both these these kind of cultural icons that one of them did come to an end at the end of the 60s and bond kind of carries on yeah I mean it's it's the silly notion of mine that they are love and death it just fits perfectly for that because love dies, love ends eventually. But the fact that it existed at some point is enough. You know, that, that sort of thing. It sort of has to die, unfortunately. Death cannot die. So Bond sort of has to go on. And in, in the Lazenby film, they almost broke the character by having him fall in love and get married. And the audiences, especially in America, were right down for that film. It was—it seemed to be the end of it. So they had to get uh, Sean Connery back for Diamonds Are Forever. And, and um, the seventies Bond films with Roger Moore uh, moved away from the notion that Bond was death because he was a lover, not a fighter. The Roger Moore character, but instead the the, the stunt team stepped up. And the films were much more about the stunt teams, and they were, and what they did really is, you know, astonishing, in in a in a way that modern uh, action films aren't, because you're watching them with bated breath because people's lives are seriously in danger, and in fact, some people did die. There was one guy, who, one stunt member, did die for in, for your eyes only, I think it was. So death was there. Death was very very much on the screen, and death doesn't die and so death endures and death goes on and on and on it's it's a it's it's that weird thing about why you know you got like five films out of jason Bourne. they were all right you know we quite like them you know no one really wants any more no one really fantasizes about being jason Bourne or any of the other you know spies that have, have, have come along they've got such a short shelf life the fact that we're you know talking about bond 26 is odd it's it's strange there's definitely different rules apply here it doesn't work if you take it totally seriously that's why a character like q is so important mm. because q just sees bonds for the arsehole that he is 
is, is permission for the audience to also see Bond in that. Sort. And they have the, they have a weird sense of sort of mocking themselves before anyone else mocks them. It's sort of there's something self-parodic, or for want of a better term. But fortunately, they've just got the you know the right amount of of comedy. A lot of Bond fans find that the comedy goes too far, especially with the pigeon that you you mentioned and and things like that, and like the swanny whistle when the, the comedy can go a bit too far for sort of some people. But you do need it. It's a knowing wink to the audience that we're not taking this totally serious, you know, um, which undercuts like nationalism, jingoism, stuff right. like that. You know, we, we, we know this is ludicrous, right? But, but, you know, it's good though, isn't it? It's great. It's ludicrous. So one of the other crossover points that we should talk about a little bit is in 1973 when Paul McCartney writes, is commissioned to write a, a proper Bond song in Live and Let Die, which he's described as quite um, a bit of an ambition of his in the interviews that, that he's given. Um, I think it's a tremendous song anyway. And uh, I think it's a great Bond song as well, because you can have, you know, you can have a really great Bond song that might not be kind of exist as happily outside of the kind of context of, of, of Bond. Why do you think it works so well as a Bond song? And also you kind of talk in the book a little bit how it starts to frame McCartney through the 70s, Live and Let Die. I think the answer to that is because of McCartney's sort of supernatural talent and craftsmanship. Um, he had never written anything like a, a Bond theme, but he was able to step up and produce what is generally seen as you know, one of the greatest, one, one of the best ones. And it's so unlike him, like lyrically, you know, the notion live and let die. Um, when I was younger, I used to think live and let live. That's very McCartney. It's almost a... Um, a rejection of his entire philosophy, but that's what the job required, you know? So he just stepped up and he was, he was sort of able to do that. And it was a sort of real turning point in the history of wings, really that followed by band on the run, you know, the, the, the first early years of wings, obviously critically had not gone down well, but they were a confusing band, mm. you know, the first single, Give Ireland back to the Irish, followed by Mary had a little lamb. It's like what? It was very, very sort of strange. And certainly, particularly in America, Wings were massive in America. A uh, big bombastic Bond film was something that they all immediately got. And I think it was Oscar nominated. And uh, it was interesting because the other three Beatles, they'd released solo albums as themselves. They were a star in themselves. George Harrison was George Harrison, John Lennon was John Lennon. And then this great initial first burst, you know, even Ringo with the Ringo album, that was, that was the, the, the sort of great first burst. And then sort of it faded away, really, for all of them. I think that's, there's good stuff in all of it, but generally speaking, it sort of faded away. Hmm. Cartney, he had that really rocky period where he's really blamed for the breakup of the Beatles. And for uh, a musician who was writing, you know, sorry, Let It Be or Hey Jude or, you know, Blackbird or so- songs of that quality to then go, here's, you know, bit bop and a lot of the sort of lo-fi stuff on the, on the first McCartney album. The, the sense that he was just smoking too much dope and was, wasn't really trying and just putting anything out was, was very sort of prevalent. So he then sort of built himself a career from a low point. It, it wasn't kind of like, oh, it's, it's a Beatles, so therefore he's famous. He sort of had the Beatles thing, then he crashed a bit and then he slowly built up built up 
that Bond theme was the start, really, of his, his commercial, his second commercial ascent. And on, on some levels, you can go, oh, that was the point in time when, you know, the relationships were healing between, you know, John and Paul. And the relationships between George and John still hadn't gone quite so wrong. There was talk of them recording together, John, George and Ringo. And if Wings hadn't taken off at that sort of point, you could easily have seen Paul agreeing to sort of a reunion because they all sort of needed it. You could see that. it was the, If there's any point a reunion might have been possible, it was then. But he suddenly had this huge sort of blast of success. Uh, so it never happened. And now whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, none of us can say. It does tug at the heart a little bit, I guess. One of my favourite parts of of your book is the chapters on George Harrison. Ah, um, yes. Oh, lovely. Which, which I think is um, one of the most complicated people that I've certainly looked at in any great depth. There's always stuff new to learn about George. And in your book, you, you say that he was the kind of most like Bond of the four Beatles. In terms of the fast cars and the womanising and that, that aspect of Bond. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of photos of him wearing 007 T-shirts and, and it just makes total sense. He sort of loved all that sort of stuff. Obviously, Bond didn't quite have deep uh, connection to Eastern religion that George Harrison has. So it's not a a total match. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your kind of sense of George that you got from from writing and researching the book. Was he a figure that you you enjoyed writing about or found it easy to write about? Yeah, no, I didn't find it easy to write about because you've got to get things like that right. That and the John Lennon chapters, you know, and also especially the Yoko chapter, because you know how many books have been written about the Beatles and you have to be able to go, well, I'll say something that's still interesting, say something new or put a perspective on it that, that's, that's sort of new. I sort of, I take the view that there's, we've sort of got to the point where we sort of know what happened. Like people like Mark Lewis and have really nailed down details so we know what happened. But now the question of what it means Hmm. is where we're at and where we're sort of talking. With George, I mean, it struck me that he was the solo Beatle who had the sort of closest and longest friends in terms of uh, a lot of racing drivers, you know, a lot of comedians. He'd make real friends, but he could only do it from certain pools of uh, equally celebrated people. And the, the notion that they were unable to meet people as equals after being in the Beatles, feels a bit sad around George. He, he, seem, he seems isolated. He seems trapped. He would love to just have make mates and go out and race cars and have fun and, and be like a normal person and go down the shops and, and do, do all these sort of, But he can't. He's Beatle George. You know, he doesn't have equals, you know, maybe Dylan, maybe Elvis. But be, beyond that, there are no equals. So the best racing drivers, the best comedians, He's able to sort of, and, and you see in the really incestuous nature of, of the love lives of stars at, at, at this sort of level, you throw um, uh, Eric Clapton into it and all that sort of stuff. And, and the, the thing with Maureen, with Ringo's wife, and yeah, it all becomes weirdly, oddly incestuous, but it's because they could only move in such a small pool of trusted people because they had the wealth, they had the celebrity, they had the fame and, they couldn't meet people as equals. And uh, I think McCartney's dealt with that really well. My feeling is George suffered from it. Mm. And that's why he was sort of 
a bit of a hermit in that, you know, that massive house at Friars Park. I think he would have loved people forgetting the Beatles. They're never going to do. They're never going to do. Oh, God, that, that quote from Danny uh, Harrison is at school and all the kids in school are like chasing him and singing Yellow Submarine. And he can't work out why are these kids singing this, you know, Yellow Submarine at me. It makes no sense. And, and he sort of got home and had a real go at his dad. Dad, why didn't you tell me you were in the Beatles? <laughs> and George has, oh, yeah, I should have, I should have mentioned, mentioned that. You can't imagine... John Lennon's kids or Paul McCartney's kids or, or Ringo's kids, like not being told that their dad was in the Beatles. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating at that point because outside of, I mean, I first, some of my, my generation first became aware of George Harrison uh, around cloud nine. Yeah. Um, which as you will remember was a big success. Yeah. Um, followed, obviously followed up by the, the Wilburys albums that were also, you know, big, big hits of their mm-hmm. time. But Cloud Nine, that's the one time when he does come out and go, I was in the Beatles. Yeah. Please buy this album. Yeah, um, absolutely. It, I wonder what led him to do that at that point. I think he needed a, a hit. I think it'd been a long time since he'd troubled the charts or the critics. And it was a little bit sort of calculated. Well, if I play, I, I better play the Beatles card, really, haven't I? He got the, he's got that card. Yeah. He's allowed to play it whenever he likes. It's his. You know, mm-hmm. you can't, you can't fault him for it but yeah there was a they did probably because it was such a commercial sounding polished 80s album which is so unlike him mm. and and things like got my mind set on you there's a cover it's not one of his his songs uh it's jolly it's jolly and jaunty which is again not his normal wheelhouse it does have the air of oh i can still do it i'll just click yeah. it you know and play the beatles garden we'll see where we go with that they all four of them wanted that commercial success. Yeah. Um, that was obviously still important to them, even though they all went off and did different levels of strangeness in the, yeah. in the, the music and sometimes the films in Ringo's case that they made. Just moving through into the into the eighties, you you talk obviously a lot about, about Paul McCartney in, in those chapters and mm. you talk about how he he kind of celebrated ordinariness which was a little bit at odds with what the 80s meant, certainly in, in Britain. It makes a lot more sense kind of now. Why do you think he was kind of like this? Yeah, uh, yeah you're absolutely right. It makes far more sense now. To Generation Z, people raised in the 21st century, uh, the values that he exposes, I think he, he framed his first solo album as you know, home family love or something like that. There was three words that... Uh, he summed it up with that he stuck by throughout the decades that sort of followed. Those are what we think of when we, we think of Paul McCartney. And they, they were so out of tune with, you know, the me decade, 1970s. They were seen as so naff and so uh, old fashioned. It was about individuality. We wanted, we wanted our rock stars to be lions. You know, we wanted godlike sort of, sort of beings. So critics took him apart and they were not, Kind and I remember in the 1980s in particular, he was just a joke, he was wacky, knackered, thumbs aloft, and stuff like that. But he stuck by these values. And it was interesting that, um, when Lennon makes double fantasy at the end of his life, for all he dismissed what Paul had been doing, those are the values that he'd finally sort of come round to. Hmm. Now, you speak to today's teenagers, and they will just laugh at the sort of posturing edgelords, as they call it, of, of the rock stars who, who saw themselves as these Dionysian sort of figureheads. They, they just cringe at them. 
And when you sort of see them through their eyes, you go, yeah, okay, yeah, probably quite right. Actually, that is really awful and, emb- and embarrassing. I don't know what we were thinking. It seemed, it's, it made such sense at the time. It's just really weird. But the values of what Paul McCartney is, and on top of the fact that, of course, his body of work is as you know, immense and as strong as, as, as it is, um, it's particularly things like the vegetarianism, which was, you know, again, he was much mocked for dur- during the time. But now... In, in the world of, you know, vegan sausage rolls and Greg's, a, a real important cultural shift has, has, has taken place. And the values that he exposed are exactly the values that the sort of post-individual youngins of today uh, identify with and, and make sense with them. So he sort of basically stayed himself and cultures shifted and changed and tweaked and, and then finally sort of caught up with him. So there's a lovely sort of point at celebrating the end of his career where uh, everyone's thrilled that he exists and it's just the thought of Paul McCartney puts a smile on people's faces and it's uh, uh, when he played Glastonbury it was it was the Saturday headline of the pyramids it wasn't like the Sunday afternoon uh, legend slot where mm. any other eight-year-old musician would be thrilled to get the legend slot you don't get the Saturday of the pyramid stage you know that's where you that's at people at the peak of their career can maybe hope to sort of get that. For him to do it after gigging for 60 years of continuing sort of success, just, just extraordinary. But I think he needs, as I to go back to your original question, he needed to sort of wear this almost like a mask of ordinariness because the alternative would be to acknowledge what he had done, mm. acknowledge how important he was. I think he's aware more than any of the others, just how historically significant the Beatles were. And knowledge like that can quite easily turn you into a monster, right? You're, people will know your name in hundreds of years' times. You know, you're, you're in the history books. Mm-hmm. You're what kind of people who will be forgotten. No one will know our names and stuff like that. And he has to live amongst us. That could go horribly wrong, but his, his, um, his insistence on on being just an ordinary guy, just just a, just a normal. It rubs people up the wrong way because mm. they think it's insincere because they know he's more than that. They know he's Paul McCartney and he's pretending to be like you bloke from down the road and stuff like that. A lot of people have trouble with it. But I think in terms of allowing him to live a life worth living, he's, he made exactly the right choice. I think he found a way to, to, to live after the Beatles. You can't fault him for that. I think, um, as you might know from following me on Twitter, on the podcast Twitter page, I dig up some silly little clips from from YouTube. Yeah, and they're great. Oh, thanks, John. I really love them. It's always a little, small, little, tiny little exchange that's, like, full of meaning. You know, it's always, even if it's just a look, it's just like, oh, yeah, that's... Well, like, yeah, I mean, it keeps me out of trouble, that kind of thing. Um, so, <laughs> and one of the ones that I, I dig up quite often are these little clips of Paul being interviewed in the 80s. Yeah. Um, and there's a couple that, that really illustrate kind of where he was. Uh, and one of which you talk about in your book where he's interviewed by, I think her name is Barbara Crumb, quite a well-known oh, yes. journalist. And what does she, and she says something like um, trying to, it must be difficult trying to, be Einstein after the theory of relativity mm. um, and there's another interview for when he's promoting press to play for in 86 and he's interviewed by a journalist called Robert Hilburn um, on an American TV show and, and Robert Hilburn just says well some of your records have got quality but some of them like back to the egg and then pa- and Paul just says you don't like them and immediately cuts him down you could never imagine in a million years now 
someone yeah. saying some of those albums that you made were really quite poor, Paul. And that interview you're talking about, the Barbara Cromont, she's so insulting. Mm. She's going, well, some people say, you know, you're insipid. Yeah, we've lost it. Your records aren't good anymore. You know, what would you, what would you say to people who say, well, he used to be okay, but now he's just awful, you know? Ah, my God, can you imagine that on uh, Graham Norton or, or what the modern equivalent is? Yeah, we think that the, the media sphere is just a harsh and vicious and cruel and horrible place because of social media, and it is. But, you know, if you look back at how it could be harsh and cruel and vicious in a completely different way not so long ago, it is a real shock. And yeah, it, it must be um, so embarrassing now to if there's footage of you just sort of going, oh, Paul McCartney, you're crap to his face. Because history ain't going to judge you well for that, are they? No, no, <laughs> and rightly so. Um, so after the 80s, we move inevitably into the 90s. And in 1995, both Bond and the Beatles have this kind of joint moment where mm. the Beatles with the anthology project, with new songs, with films, with albums of outtakes and uh, James Bond with Goldeneye, yeah. um, uh, Pierce Brosnan's first film. They both come back almost in the same month, November 1995. Yeah. Um, both these things reappear and they both have this huge kind of success again. And there's the famous Paul quote from 96 where he says, people have been looking for a band to be as big as the Beatles for 30 years. And it turned out it was the Beatles, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I love. Um <laughs> So, yes, what, what happened in, in 1995 to make both these British institutions kind of be taken back into our hearts again? Yeah, that's, that was fascinating. It's, you know, I was writing a, or going back to a, a, a KLF book I wrote about 10 years ago, and there was some stuff about ABBA. The KLF took huge chunks of ABBA, and then they went over to Sweden to sort of, uh, it's, a, it's a long, crazy story, but they ended up burning all their albums, and, and they were looking to try and talk to ABBA. And uh, I had to sort of remind myself that at that time in the 80s, ABBA were just old-fashioned. They were people were embarrassed by ABBA. ABBA was so naff. And it seems odd to think that that could be the case because, I mean, just listen to them. They're, they're ABBA. And, you know, it wasn't until, I think it was 92 when ABBA Gold came. Well, at first it was the ABBA-esque EP, the Erasure sort of thing, which at the time, the thought that they're doing ABBA songs was so... Naff, but they could get away with it because it was camp. Mm. But then Abba Gold hit, and it's just you know all bangers. It's not a bad song on that. And then, and then we get the Abba, the untouchable disco powerhouse that we see them as now. It's almost like every major um, important artist has to go through this period where people just have moved on mm. and then just not interested and they just don't care. Their work just gets dumped into the swamp of culture and all that sort of sink and maybe disappear. But th those that have something timeless about them, then they're pulled out again. You know, then they survive. Then they sort of return to us. Things that were great in their time, that were massive in their time, but only really make sense in their time. They sort of fade away forever. The timelessness, good stuff starts starts to come back. And you know, it was great with Golden Eye because the whole uh, Brit pop, it, it was backward looking in many ways, and it was. In attitude, Bond was was great for it. There's, and things like introducing um, Judy Dent, Shazam, and stuff like that was enough of a change. Perfect for the 90s, basically. Britpop was happy to be British. It was more about energy. It was more about attitude than new things. It was, it, it was very comfortable with looking back. 
mm. um, in a way that the post-punk era wasn't. Both got a real kick, a real kick. And you, you wonder how Bond's going to do that again, because things like the GoldenEye N64 video game just made him very, very round to my generation, you know. As successful as Daniel Craig's been, he has lost that teenage audience and the notion that dads watch Bond films with their sons as a sort of male bonding thing has all sort of fallen away, you know. The notion that you you know Bond because it would be on, on bank holidays on TV, so it was always sort of there. That's fallen away because the kids ain't coming down to watch the TV on bank holidays at all. They're in their rooms on their own sort of screens. So sort of the way in for a new generation to Bond is... It's not. It's not clear where that's gonna that's gonna come from, but it happened perfectly uh, around Goldeneye for the '90s generation. Yeah, I think that's interesting to kind of move on to to conclude. Obviously, you end the book with a discussion of the most recent Bond film, No Time to Die, which, as you say, was it still a huge commercial success uh, despite a few droplets of disdain from a certain element of the British media. I can't speak for America impossible to guess this but and you hinted at it with your last answer but for both these two British icons Bond and the Beatles um, did writing the book give you any kind of sense or clue as to what's going to happen next with them in the next 10-15 years? Yeah well it's a it's a very good question and you know I'm obviously just stabbing in the dark here and, and sort of guessing with Bond it's very tricky because Basically, it's going to be the first millennial Bond, right? Mm. And for a lot of old school Bond fans, that's going to be difficult because their attitudes are very different. And, you know, for instance, um, part of the character of Bond was, you know, he's a bit of a slag, essentially. That was seen as quite sophisticated. He liked to sleep around and stuff like that. This is a generation that's grown up with dating apps and and hookup apps and and things like that. And just being a bit of a slag isn't really a character-defining sort of point anymore. I really, because the whole way he's sort of fallen out of favour with this generation. Mm. There's no cosplay bond in, you know, when you see Comic Con or anything like that. There's cosplay for everything, but no one's dressing up as Bond. No one of that generation is. For many, he seems to sum up everything that Generation Z are against. And you get a lot of podcasts called, I mean, Kill James Bond is a great one. You know, they just hate James Bond. He's, he's imperialistic, he's misogynistic, he's, he's, he's this old guy, you know, it's just, it's, it's just, it's been fascinating to get a new demographic. It's going to have to be sort of like a Harry Styles type character, right? And that'll be interesting to see how people accept that sort of thing. So I, I don't, I, yeah. And you can tell they're struggling because, you know, they've, they finished filming No Time to Die, what was it? before the pandemic and all yeah. that. And they, they, they're still going, well, we're, we're trying to work it out. We, we ain't, we aren't sure where we're sort of going. And, you know, the 60th anniversary is about to hit and you think, for God's sake, announce now, you know, what, it, what it's going to be. That would be perfect. But you can see they, they seem a bit stuck. From what they say, they seem a bit stuck. So that will be interesting. But as I, I do maintain that Bond is death and hence will not die and then will continue. So mm. we shall see. The Beatles, where they go from now, that's really tricky because... For a long time, I just thought, oh, we won't have a Netflix or a Disney Plus. We'll just do a Yellow Submarine series, which will have the music and it'll have various characters and it'll and it'll look great, unlike that Robert Zemeckis sort of remake sort of thing. You know, you think of the Beatles as being part of the family, an understated thing, something that just appears on TV and people get into them that way. And it's, uh, but I kind of think they've got too big 
for that now. I think the amount of attention on, you know, just a funny TV Yellow Submarine series would just crush it almost. They've become history. It used to be that you, people talk about, you know, the Beatles and the Stones as if they were uh, some some way equivalent. Now it's it's the Beatles and Shakespeare. They, they're that sort of that sort of level. And I could see something that's like a cross between the the Cirque du Soleil show and the Abba Avatars thing. A real sort of you know a, a celebration of of the Beatles as a show that the good people they would run and run and run and uh, and something like that. The further we get away from them, the more perspective we have, the more we realise that, that they are bigger than the Beatles are bigger than the Beatles somehow. It's, it's like, you know, Shakespeare is bigger than 16th century theatre. His cultural footprint sort of is massive compared to 16th century, even though that's a logical when you think about it. You know, Beatles are so much bigger than, you know, certainly 60s pop music or British pop music in general. They've become their, their own thing. Uh, and the, But it, it's the story so bewitching still and the relationships between them is so fascinating and I, I found so I read a lot of books during the research of this and I feared at some point I'm going to get really sick of reading Beatles books but you just don't the, sort of, the deeper you go the richer and richer it becomes and the more fascinating it becomes I think there's been over 2,000 books about the Beatles something like that yeah no, there's no other relationship between you know four people on this planet that can have that level of study and and, and still seem a va- you know vital and exciting and interesting and it's good it's good to have it in your life isn't it the, the Beatles story absolutely <laughs> I often wonder if your face one... is brilliant then <laughs> I often wonder if one thing that they could do and I don't know if this, this might be a terrible idea but is do that kind of Netflix crown you know long form oh, drama yeah um, absolutely. That's that's properly cast like the crown. I think the crown is, you know, I'm not a massive royalist, but it, it yeah. is still an interesting story and it's really well cast. I think totally. the crown. I mean, it's so, it's so rich. You'd have to do a, uh, you get a whole series out of every year. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's almost like, I do wonder if Mark Lewis, just like kicking himself when he signed this deal and said, Oh, it'll be a trilogy. I'll, I'll do, I'll tell the history of the Beatles. It'll probably have to be a trilogy, you know, when really, you know, if if, it, if you just did a book every, for every year, sixty-two book, sixty-three book, sixty-four book, sixty-three, we'd all go out and buy them. We'd spend far more money. We want to give him money. We want we want those books. We <laughs> we want them as soon as we can. We wait. We're patient. You know, if you did them in the year, that would make more sense. But yeah, every year you could just expand to an entire series, and you can see that in the in books like there was Beatles sixty-six. So really, like the John Lennon nineteen eighty book that was out quite recently, I thought that was that was fantastic. You've got the best part of twenty series. I would subscribe to your street streaming service for those. You'd have to, obviously they'd need the music. It'd have yeah. to be fairly well. It would have to be Apple involved. Yeah, that would be great. I'm up for that. We'll leave the listeners with that thought. John, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for talking to us today. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, it's been a joy, Joe. Thanks very much. <laughs>